0: Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning, I want to share greetings from uh, Brother Jim Price. I talked to him, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday uh, this week. They were in Manitoba, and uh, he wanted to ask me to greet the folks here. He also, uh, because they've been so busy and on the road, hadn't had a chance, But and I think he sent a letter as well, but he asked me to thank the church for the... Uh, the Christmas gift uh, that we sent said it was a great blessing and a help. Be praying for uh, Brother Jim as they uh, continue travels and raising support. And I wanted to share that greeting with you. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. going to talk about four proofs of God's love. Four proofs. Now, there's a whole lot more than that. I was talking with... Brother Colton, uh, for a few moments this afternoon, we're talking about math. Uh, That's a a weird Sunday afternoon discussion, mathematics. And we're talking about uh, calculus. That's an even weirder Sunday afternoon. Amen, Brother Ahmad? That's a weird afternoon discussion. And I was explaining a couple things and talking about proofs. And uh, I hated proofs. I hate proving anything in mathematics because when I did math... My brain isn't wired like everybody else's brain. Your brain works, and my brain doesn't work. And uh, my circuits are wired all different. And uh, I can find the answer, but I don't follow the same path you you followed to get it. And uh, I used to go back and forth with my math teacher over some of my proofs. Uh, And I would say, look, is my answer right or not? Yes, but you couldn't have got the answer the way you did it. I said, look, did I get the answer right or not? And we would go back and forth, and I, I probably should have been a little more uh, submissive to her. But uh, I I didn't like showing proofs. God likes to show proofs. And by the way, He proves every day His love for you. His mercies you every morning. Amen. Every morning when you see the sun come up. Teenagers, did you know that that thing, the, the, the bright thing up in the sky, it actually disappears at night and it comes back up early in the morning? Uh, it's not always in the sky, but when it comes up every morning, uh, it's a reminder that he rose from the dead A reminder of his love for us we, we could look at hundreds and thousands of proofs tonight But I just in this one little passage in Ephesians chapter 2 I want to take a few moments uh, Just to enjoy uh, some time together in his word uh, Just to relish in what God's done uh, Just to praise him, just to worship him tonight Look with me here, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 But God Who's rich in mercy for his great love, forwith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Lord, my heart tonight, my desire is that we would worship you and glorify you this evening. Lord, you're worthy of our praise.
1: Lord, we get a few
0: glimpses into heaven you've given us in your word. Lord, John would have written much more if you would have allowed him, but the few glimpses that you allowed John to give us, Lord, it seems every time I see through the windows of heaven, I see worship and I see praise. And Lord, tonight I pray as you taught the disciples to pray, would you make it a little bit like heaven on earth tonight? God, would you help us to worship you a little bit tonight the way we will worship you forever in heaven. Lord, someday we will bow before the throne and cry out with the angels and cry out with the saints of God. Worthy is the Lamb. Lord, tonight you're already worthy. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Help us tonight, Lord, to direct our worship and our praise to you as we look at these proofs of your love for us. Help me, Lord, to preach you right your truth. God, may you be glorified. In your precious name we pray. Amen. What would God have to do to prove his love for you? What would it take for us to say, I know, I know without a doubt that God loves me. And w- would it take more money, would it take better health, would it take greater happiness in your life, more comfort, a better job, a bigger house, a new car, what would it take? March 31st, 1995, I think it was, I think that's right, maybe ninety four. My wife will correct me later. That was my birthday. By the way, there's just a few shopping days left to my birthday. Be aware of that. (laughs) But my wife and I had been dating. We had our first date December 7th, maybe, or 8th. And then this is March 31st. It was a little over three and a half months later. I met her that day as I was going out to go to work. And she gave me a cupcake, it was a Otis Spunkmeyer, I think, Uh, chocolate, double chocolate, I think, chocolate chip, chocolate cupcake. She had a candle on it. Uh, You know, she couldn't bake a cake in her room, so she bought a cupcake. And did you give me something else that day? I don't remember. I don't think so. She's a cheapskate. And uh, she gave me that cupcake (laughs) and as a birthday gift and that day. As I was driving to work, as I got in my 1977 Ford Granada piece of garbage, and as I was going to work, me and my buddies, I looked over at the fellow who was my best friend in Bible college. His name's Jeremy. I talked to him just a couple weeks ago. It was his his birthday, actually, a couple weeks ago. I looked over at him, and I said, Jeremy, I'm going to marry Carrie. I'm going to... I'm going to ask her to marry me at Christmas, and we're going to get married next summer. And he said, does she know this? I said, no, but I'm going to tell her. Now, when my wife heard that story later, she decided it must have been the cupcake. So, so girls, that's the secret. you got to give the cupcakes. But the cupcake had nothing to do with it. Too many times, all the little things that we think we want from God, they have nothing to do with God's love. But I want us to look tonight at some things that do have everything to do with the love of God. Everything God does. Everything God does, He does for a specific purpose. He he does nothing without cause. He does nothing without purpose. His efforts to mankind are always... If we look in the the account of creation in Genesis all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see that God is always dealing with man to show man his love. Always. He he loves us. He, He does nothing by chance. God does nothing in desperation. There's a wonderful old song, and part of that song goes of you know, God searched through heaven looking for God didn't search through heaven. I I, I like the song. I, I understand the premise. Salvation was not a desperation move. God didn't have to scramble and back in the, the back on oh, no, man, what am I gonna do now? Man sin, where do I throw the ball? No, it was planned from eternity. It always was. God knew. So everything God does and everything God has ever done is for Because he loves man God never throws anybody away For a little over a year now God's put a burden on my heart I'm going to have to do something about it pretty soon But God's burdened me to, to do something that is pretty outside my normal wheelhouse. But I'm, I guess the Lord's going to, I'm either going to do it or God's going to kill me probably. But God's burdened me to write a book with that premise of don't throw them away. We live in a culture today, Christian culture, where we give the gospel out. And we try to reach people. In so many churches, if that person we reach is not the instant Christian that we think they ought to be, if they don't look the way we think they ought to look and talk the way we think they ought to talk and do everything exactly the way we think they ought to in a couple of weeks, we want to toss them away and get started again. God doesn't do that. I love the story in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah went down to the potter's house, and he looked through the window and watched the potter as he worked at the wheel, and he watched as the potter broke the vessel, but he didn't throw the clay away, he simply started again. Christian we need to understand the love of God that God doesn't throw you away he doesn't throw me away he desires to use us and to mold us and to make us now does that mean that we're I'm going to be able to do everything God has wanted me to do there are times that because of some brokenness that I can't be all that God had wanted would want for me but that doesn't mean God throws me away I love the picture there of Jeremiah as he looks In the potter's house, we look at God's love so often through what happens to us daily. We look at it as, wow, something good happened today. God loves me. Oh, man, today was a bad day. Brother Maud fell on the stairs. Boy, it's a bad day. God must not love me. I'm a little worried. My enemy is now attacking you. We have the same enemy, the stairs. We look at, oh, this is good. Okay, I have a good day. This is bad. I've got a good day. Most of you probably know this. My family knows this for sure. If anyone asks me how I'm doing, what do I say, Rebecca? How are you? I say, beautiful. I'm beautiful. Exactly. Now I'm not beautiful. But I've learned not to gauge how I'm doing according to what's happening in my life. God loves me. When I fall down the stairs, He still loves me. When I... When I disobey Him, He still loves me. We look for God's love in the things that happen to us. And we say, God, why are you doing that? We question God. God answers back many times, I believe. Not audibly, but He answers back because I love you. Because I love you. I want to take just a few moments tonight and I I don't think I'll be lengthy this evening but I want to share four thoughts four proofs of God's love and then I want to shift gears just a little bit for just a couple very small points into the message. Number one, we find this proof in our text. We're going to be looking just in Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5. Would you look there with me? Ephesians 2 verse 4 and 5 But God Who's rich in mercy for his great love for he loved us even when we were dead in sins. Hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. Are you saved? Proof number one. He quickened me. He quickened me. He made me alive. When I met Brother Bonnie ten and a half years ago. Is that right? Brother Bonnie was a dead man walking. He was dead. He was lost. He grew up with a religious past, but he was lost. He believed the Bible, but he was lost. He believed who Jesus was, but he was lost. But just a little over 10 years ago, God took a dead man and he made him alive. Your testimony tonight, Christian, if you're a born-again child of God, is you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but He quickens you. When I was in grade seven, I came home from school one day. I walked down the hallway of our home, down the hallway past the bathroom, past the laundry in the hallway, and my room was on the left, my sister's room, my room. I walked out of my room. When I walked out of my room to go back down the hallway, I looked, and there in the middle of the hallway was a tennis ball. Now I'm a hillbilly. I guarantee you there was no tennis racket, brother, within 100 miles of my house. There was not a tennis ball there because I played tennis. There was a tennis ball on my floor because I had a dog, Boston Terrier. And I looked down the hallway Through the living room into the kitchen and laying in the kitchen floor was my dog, stone cold asleep. (sighs) How many have ever heard a Boston Terrier snore? They sound worse than Pastor Rice snoring and I'm pretty bad. He was snoring. He was out of it. And in my little juvenile 12-year-old brain, I hatched a plan. I thought, how cool would it be to line up that tennis ball? kick the tennis ball down the hallway, hit the dog, wake him up. I mean, that's, that sounds fun, doesn't it? So that's my plan. So no shoes on in the house. You know, I ran back to kick the tennis ball, and I kicked it about three inches before you got to the tennis ball on the ground. My big toe snapped in half. The bone broke and the bone went through the toenail. Blood began to forcefully. Colton, you having you haven't trouble yet? I know it's he's a he's very visionary when he hears. Blood is spraying and I began to scream. My loving mother, she's probably watching still. Uh, she yelled at me to be quiet. <laughs> she might have even said a, a real foul word like "shut up." I don't know what she said, but she's. What's wrong with you? Be quiet. What are you screaming about? My dad was on the roof of our house. He was working on fixing the roof on the back porch. My dad heard my scream through the roof and he knew something was horribly wrong. My dad jumped off the roof. I don't mean he took the ladder, he jumped off the roof, came in the house, came in, and there I am blood squirting. They took me to the hospital. They had to kind of almost kind of set my toe a bit, and they had to cut the rest of the toenail off. And then they had to stitch because the bone went through the toe. They had to stitch the quick, what we call the, the meat underneath the nail. They had to put stitches across that. Now, there's a reason they call that quick, there's no doubt. There's some feeling there. And I remember that my dad holding me down. The nurses holding me down. And that was just to get the needle near me, Brother Armada. I hate needles. And they're stitching that quick. It's very much alive. You and I were dead, in Christ, dead without Christ. But he made us very much alive. How do I know God loves me? A lot of reasons, but I can look here in this passage and tell you tonight that God loves me because He quickened me. He made me alive. He gave me spiritual life. He's quickened us in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. Letter A there, He quickened us in Christ Jesus. It's an expression of His mercy and His love towards us in verse 4. We were dead in sins in verse 5. We were hell bound. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you... And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We've been made alive. I like the way Matthew Henry says it. Matthew Henry, a commentator of years gone by. Matthew Henry said grace is the soul. Grace in the soul is a new life in the soul. As death locks up the senses, seals up all the powers and faculties, So does the state of sin. As to anything that is good, grace unlocks and opens all. And enlarges his soul. Observe, a regenerate sinner becomes a living soul. Praise God for that. He lives a life of sanctification, being born of God. He lives in the sense of the law, being delivered from the guilt of sin by pardoning and justifying grace. He hath quickened us together with Christ. Our spiritual life, Mr. Henry said. Our spiritual life results from our union with Christ. It is in Him that we live. As Jesus said, because I live, He shall live also. How do I know He loves me? From this passage, because He made me alive. He gave you life. He gave you spiritual life. John three sixteen For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How can we question the love of God? When He said, I love you this much. Oh, I wanted more, God. He gave you everything. He gave everything that you and I might be alive. That we might have life eternal. Greater love hath no man than this, the Bible says in John 15, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8, but God, and I love this verse, probably one of my top ten favorite verses in the Bible. But God committeth his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while I was getting better. Not once I became spiritual. Not once I cleaned up my life. But while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for us. I didn't have to improve myself. Matter of fact, it wouldn't have made a difference if I did. I didn't have to prove to him I was lovable. Why? I'm not lovable. He decided to love me. He loved me as I was. He died for the ungodly. By the way, he died for those that we wouldn't die for. When you think of the, the most evil and vile people, in our world and in the past, we think of people like Timothy McVeigh. Became popular this last year. And uh, pop culture. Can I tell you that as wicked and vile as the crimes that Mr. McVeigh committed, he, I'm sorry, Mr. Dahmer and Mr. Mc, Mr. McVeigh bombing the tower. Uh, Mr. Dahmer who so I was thinking of, who, Killed and ate people and stored body parts, as wicked as all that was. God said, I I'm, I want to make available to him salvation, I had you trusted Christ? Charles Manson. The vilest person you can think of in the world that we call, that, pff, that's wicked. You know what God says? I love them. I love them. He wants to make them whole. He wants to quicken them. We live in a system that knows nothing of love. We know a perverted understanding of love. But I want to assure you tonight that God loves you. And He doesn't love you because He wants to get something from you, He doesn't love you because He's he's trying to uh, earn something. He just loves you. And His love isn't temporary, it's everlasting. It's forever and forever and forever and forever. How many of you have ever eaten something that you love so much, you ate so much of it, it made you sick, and you didn't want to eat it again? You ever been there? What was it, Josh? My food? (laughs) I was a boy. I I like sauerkraut. How many of you like sauerkraut? We made sauerkraut when I was a boy. I like sauerkraut. I think sauerkraut's awesome, Mike. It's good stuff. I still like it. But as a young boy, about nine years old, I decided to eat a whole jar of sauerkraut. And I ate a whole jar of sauerkraut. I should have good gut bacteria the rest of my life, Brother Krim. I was sick. I was real sick. I mean sick, sick, sick. I didn't want to eat sauerkraut for a long time. God never gets sick of you. He loves us. With an everlasting love, First John four: Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God dwelleth. God dwelleth with him, and he and God. And we know and believe the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. God's proven his love through his Son Jesus Christ. Number two, the number two proof we find here in this passage quickly tonight. Which we find in verse 6. And he hath raised us up together and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Proof number two tonight He raised me up. He raised me up. He raised you up. You know, remember when Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, all of my sin. All of your guilt and my guilt and your sin and my sin was placed on him. All of it. I don't believe for one second that Jesus made a limited atonement. Those that would try to pervert the gospel to say that Jesus only died for a certain portion of sin. Can I tell you that if that were true, then Jesus Christ is a liar. And we ought to burn this book. Because he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. If the Bible doesn't mean that, if, if it doesn't mean everybody, if there's someone who, no, he didn't die for your sin, he died for yours and not for yours, then God's a liar. Mm-hmm. And he's a charlatan, and he can't be trusted. Rather, he died for all. He bore all sin, every bit of it. All of sin, it was, it was on him on the cross. It was, hold on. When he came off of that cross, was buried with him. Was buried with him. I remember, I believe it was my grandmother's funeral, my dad's mom, that I preached back in '90. It was '98. My wife and I had been married a few years. I think my memory's right. I remember at the funeral, my my cousins, I remember them all taking a note and folding that note up, placing that note in the casket to be buried with her. Can I tell you when Jesus was placed in that tomb, your sin was placed there with him. The sin that he bore on Calvary, he took to the tomb. So pastor what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about Jesus taking my sin to the tomb? <laughs> because he didn't stay there. He rose again. He he rose again, meeting that sin was put ever behind Him. In the book of Psalm, chapter 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dwelt with us after our sins, Amen. nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy towards them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are but dust. Look at verse 6 again in our text. It says, and hath raised us up together. And made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that phrase, hath raised us up together. Can I tell you, those that know the English language better than I do, will tell you that that phrase there uh, is something that is past tense. Not he's going to, but he already did. He hath raised us up. So, preacher, when did that happen? When did he raise me up? Three days and three nights. After they placed the body of our lovely Lord on the ground. When he rose again, you were raised with him. I was raised with him. He was raised incorruptible. Guess what, Christian? I was raised incorruptible in him. I know he loves me. I see the proof of his his love. He, He quickened me. He made me alive. He raised me up with him. If you will, I was nailed to that cross with Him. I was buried with Him. I was risen with Him. He brought within the redemption of our new creation. I'm not just safe from hell. And I praise God I'm safe from hell. I'm glad I'm not going to hell. But can I tell you, can I tell you tonight that salvation is not just fire insurance from hell. I, I'm glad that I, there's no chance that I can go to hell. I had, I had two people yesterday tell me to go to hell. Brother well, mud, I had one person tell me to do things that were physically impossible. I had, had some very rude people yesterday. But two different people told me to go to hell yesterday. That was their words. Now, I didn't say it. I, I, I Here's what I said. I said, God bless you. <laughs> that was my answer as I was trying to get my gospel track. But what I wanted to say was I couldn't go to hell if I wanted to. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry you want me to go there, but I can't go. I, I am saved from hell, but I am saved to heaven. I am raised up. And Christian, let's not forget what we have. Let's worship him. Let's praise him for what he's done. As we see his love, I'm made alive. I am risen with him. What a wonderful thing. He's forgiven me. He's pardoned me. He's regenerated me. He's adopted me. He's cleansed me. He's given me a home in heaven. He's with me. He's never leave me, never forsake me. And one day he's going to come back and say, hey, come up here. And I'm going. How wonderful. I'm risen with him. All of this is done in Christ Jesus. So here's the question. Why do we live like we're part of this world? Why do we live like the people of earth? When Carrie was giving birth to Rebecca, it was a very, very traumatic experience. It was very difficult. It was very dangerous few moments. The doctor came, tried one last procedure, and she told me, she said, Mr. Rice, if this doesn't work right here, right now, on this bed in this room, I am doing emergency cesarean section. It was some tense moments. I I deal with tense moments with humor. Maybe you've understood that about me. But our doctor, she walked in and she had this, you would almost thought COVID was in the air. She had a mask on. She had this plastic shield on. She had rubber gloves on. She had her hands up like this. And she was a, I can't remember what nationality she was. Maybe East Indian, I think, lady, little lady. She came in, and she looked like some kind of alien creature because of all the stuff she had on. And she walked in like this, and uh, quietly to the two nurses that were with me, I said, take me to your leader. Uh, they thought it was funny. She didn't think it was funny at all. Uh, Rebecca thought it was funny. She was laughing in the womb, but they didn't think it was funny. Carrie was punching me. but Now, we joke about, you know, oh, not of this world. You know, something extraterrestrial. I think they've been shooting down on UFOs here the last couple of weeks. Anyway, you and I, we're not of this world. We are not terrestrial. We are extraterrestrial. We belong to heaven. I've already been raised up in Him. There's no reason for me to live like I belong. I, I, I've been made an heir of God, Join heirs with Christ. Eternity's my time frame. So many things we could go into tonight, but we see the love of God in Him raising us up. Number three here in our text. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2. Then in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. And His kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Number three tonight, we see here that He shows Grace. He shows kindness. Now, if I let Brother Eric be God tonight, his wife would never hear the end of it if he got to be God. But if Brother Eric were God, and somebody came up and smacked him in the face, I mean just. Eric's a mild-mannered and genteel <laughs> gentleman. But I have a feeling if you pop Brother Eric in the face one too many times, he's not going to show grace and kindness. There's going to be a point. Like, like Popeye. How many of you remember Popeye? Uh, Mark, you said your dad said Popeye was your favorite. That was my favorite cartoon as a kid. Chicken. Popeye's chicken. That's my favorite chicken now. But Popeye was my favorite cartoon as a kid. And Popeye had the phrase, I've stood all I could stand and I can't stands no more. And he'd be pushed just to the edge until finally he was ready to fight. Let's just be real honest. If you were God and you had to deal with you, There would come a point, the point would have come a long time ago, where I would have said, Brian Rice, you're done. And yet God shows me grace. He shows me kindness. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, getting something good I do not deserve. Kindness, why? Not because of who you are but because of who He is. How wonderful here He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. Not just here. Here's a little bit of grace. The exceeding riches of His grace in kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Here we see His love for the present and all for the future. It's not I want to give you something now, but not later. He wants to give us all throughout our relationship with Him and through all eternity, grace, kindness. God shows His love every day. Every day. It is of His mercies that we are not consumed. Mr. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, that preached during the Great Awakening, Mr. Edwards who typed out or wrote down, not typed, he he wrote down his messages He was very poor of scene. He would write his messages out word for word. He was not an orator. He was not a great public speaker. He would write out word for word his message. And it said of Mr. Edwards that he would bend his head where he was face to face, probably probably have macular degeneration, some sort of vision problem, as he would get very close to his notes and he would read them. It said in a monotone voice, Brother Armand, It wasn't about the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. It was about the Holy Spirit of God that led Mr. Edwards to preach the Holy Book of God. And as Mr. Edwards would preach his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people, not at the invitation during the service, sinners would crawl on their hands and knees to the altar, begging God to save them. But in his message, he said that we are as a sinner, we are but held by the very spider thread above the very pit of hell at any moment could be plunged headlong. Can I tell you that's where I was? but that's not where I am. Now I have His grace. Now I have His kindness. How wonderful that is. How wonderful that we have the proof of his love. By the way, that grace and kindness speaks of safety, speaks of assurance. I've been in some dangerous places. I've been in some places that were very, very dangerous. I joke with people once in a while, some of the worst parts of Edmonton. I've been in playgrounds that were more dangerous than Edmonton. I've I've been in some scary situations. I've been in some dangerous situations. But those times I've been in dangerous situations, it was because and while I was sharing the gospel. And I'll be real honest with you. There's never been a time when I've been in a dangerous place sharing the gospel when I've been fearful. Probably because I'm just a a dummy. But I I just knew I'm supposed to be here The Lord knows If he wants me here Then I'm supposed to be here I remember going in a building And as I went to go in the building The police In the police station At the bottom of the building Looked at me and said Don't go in here If you go in that elevator And you do not come back Chicago police They told me We will not come look for you We don't care what happens to you After you go in that door We're not coming up there Just so you know you're on your own. So, no, "I'm good. Why? Because I like dangerous situations? No, because I needed to share the gospel in that building. Can I tell you that God's grace and kindness are enough? Does that mean that I'm always going to be safe? No. But it means I'll always be where God wants me to be. I'll always be in his will as long as I trust him. By the way, Peter, when he was crucified upside down, he was in God's hand. So a pastor, hold on a minute. That's pretty dangerous. That's not a good thing. He glorified God even in death. We get so hung up on our perceived safety and our perceived enjoyment of life that we forget that it's about God's glory God's blessing. We see His kindness. We see His grace. The Bible says in Jude, now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. By the way, let me me stop here just a moment. This isn't the message. But just in case there's anybody here that's struggling with this understanding of eternal security, if you think that you can lose your salvation, then you think God is not able. The Bible tells us right here, he's able. Now, what does it say about God if he's able to keep you and he doesn't? Either he's a liar or he's evil. True? One of those things has to be true. So for me to believe, I'd have to throw away so many doctrines, but for me to believe that I could lose my salvation... I've got to either accept that God is evil or God is a liar. That's it. There, there, there's, you can't rectify it any other way. He's able. He's able to keep me from falling, to present me faultless before the presence of glory, with exceeding joy. Jude 25, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Number four. Lastly tonight, verse number 10 in our text Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 For we are His workmanship Created in Christ Jesus unto Good works Which God hath before ordained that we should walk in Them Number four tonight as we see the next proof Of God's love for us He created you not only did he create you, but he created you for good works. Good works. For good works. I, I I love this thought. And number one, we're his workmanship. We're his workmanship. I haven't for years, but years ago I used to build, I used to do some bowyering. How many of you know what bowyering is? Brother Darren's done some bowyering. Uh, I, I used to build longbows and I, several years ago now, probably 16, 17, 18, 19, maybe 19 years ago, I decided to build one for my dad and I didn't use fiberglass, I used God's fiberglass. Some of you know what God's fiberglass is, bamboo. And I I did a tri-lam bow, and I built it out of the front of the bow, the side when you pull the bow, the side people see facing away from you, was raw bamboo. And then two other laminations glued together in a coal and a form, and uh, after I glued it into the shape I wanted, then I, I cut it down to shape and profiled and sanded, and I finished that bow. I created it. I crafted it. I wrote, I think on the top, bottom limb or top limb, I can't remember, facing the person holding the bow, two letters inside of quotation marks. A P and an A. How many of you know what that stands for? Paul. That's what I call my dad most of the time. I call him Paul. One time we're all soul winning together 20 years ago in a church van in West Virginia. And I said something, I called my dad Paul. As I got out, one of the men said, Marcus, is your first name Paul? I always thought your first name was Marcus. Uh, but I wrote Paul on that bow. I, I created it. It was crafted by me. It was a gift I gave to my dad. Now, most likely that bow will never be worth millions of dollars. Uh, because I'm not a sought-after bowyer. I'm not a well-known crafter of bows because I made it has no intrinsic value to anyone else except my dad. However, there are some things in this world that are much more valuable because who made them? Many years ago, I was sent a gift from a man that I never I've still never met. A man that I had helped with something I met online and he decided to send me a gift. He was driving through the area where I grew up and general area probably within 10 miles as the crow flies across the river from where my family live and he stopped in a little country store, little everything store, gas station. Uh, Lois knows what I'm talking about, little general store of everything. They don't exist much up here, but little place, probably half the size of this building inside, and just a little bit of everything. You go in, you can get a few things, and that's it. In the back of the building, there was a, a little wood-burning stove, a little pot-belly stove, and some chairs where you'd go and sit and play checkers, that kind of place down south. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but anyway, they... There in that area near the wood-burning stove and the checkers, there was an old tub. I think it was an old uh, bin of some kind, maybe a vegetable bin, maybe an old barrel actually come to think of it, he told me, but there's a bunch of just old things in there. And there was an old knife, an old hunting knife. And this guy saw that old hunting knife in this little general store and this little town near where he knew that i was from that area and he thought i want to do something nice to pay him back he paid a few bucks maybe 20 30 maybe 50 bucks i don't remember he bought this old knife it was in a ratty sheath that was falling apart the knife was pitted and old and he sent it to me as a gift and i i was overwhelmed that's really neat that's really awesome really cool old knife and thanks to the wonders of the internet and the interwebs, I began to look, and there was a name on the knife. The name was Morseth. I began to Google Mr. Morseth. I began to look for the knives that he created that looked like that, and I began to learn something that caused me to message that man and say, Sir, I cannot accept this gift. I, I need to mail it back to you. I realized that that knife, although it was rough and although it was a little ugly and although the sheath was falling apart, it was very valuable. Not because of its condition. It was very valuable because who made it. And I told the man, I said, sir, I'm sending this back to you. I said, I can't accept this gift. It's worth a lot of money. And he said, if you mail it back to me, I'm going to send it back up. He said, I bought it for you. I only paid whatever it was for it. He said, it's yours. And I told him, I said, sir, I'm not going to sell it. I said, I'll keep it uh, as a reminder of your love and you know, appreciation the gift he sent me. Several years later, a friend who's a custom knife maker stole it from my house and made it look brand new again, and his wife made a custom sheath for it. That didn't add value to the knife, but the value as far as the world's concerned for that knife is because of the man, the famous man that made it. That's its value. Christian, can I tell you your value? You were created by him. The master. The master made you. The creator of all things. I have his love because he signed me, his signature. He made me, he made you in his image. I was made by God. I was his workmanship. I've been created in Christ Jesus. And notice the phraseology here in Ephesians 2, unto good works. Created, by the way, means you didn't just happen. It was purposed. It was planned. I was created in Christ for a specific purpose. I need to find out what that is. Ephesians 4.11 in our text, or just a few verses away, a couple chapters away, says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God has something for you. He made you. Your worth is because of Him, not because of you. These good works we have mentioned here have been preordained or foreordained by God. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8 says, This is a faithful say. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. I want to make a statement. If you have a pen, I encourage you to write it down. I believe a a powerful statement about this truth. Notice in our text here, we were created. Christian, you and I were created to walk in these good works. Don't miss that. You and I were created to walk in these good works. So listen to this statement. They await your doing. God God created you to walk in those works. Can I tell you that they're waiting on you? They await you to do them. They await me to do them. By the way... When I do obey the Lord Jesus Christ, when I follow Him, when I honor Him in my life, I am realizing every step, every work, everything I do is a reminder, God loves me. God loves me. I've got a dear friend who got saved out of serious alcoholism and drunkenness and drugs and horrible, horrible life. Him and his wife, before they got saved, they used to get high on drugs and get angry at each other and shoot at each other with pistols in the house. And I don't mean they were pretending. I mean, they were trying to kill each other. But they would get so high on drugs that amazingly, God spared them. They didn't. Several times, they tried to kill each other. Somewhere tonight, Brother Hicks is standing behind the pulpit like this. Preaching the word of God. Praise the
1: Lord.
0: As an evangelist in the southern U.S. Amen. Every time he opens the Bible. And lays on the pulpit as a reminder. He used to be laying down lines of cocaine. He used to be laying down empty beer bottle after empty beer bottle. He used to be picking up the pistol and trying to kill his dear wife. Praise the Lord. God created him and ordained him to walk in good works. It's a reminder, Christian. I give that example because it's easy for you to see and and see the difference. But I hope tonight you understand that the difference is in you as well. It's in you as well. So, Pastor, I I was never a drunkard. I I was never a drug addict. I never tried to kill my wife. Well, maybe I tried to kill my wife. But I, I, I didn't do those things. Remember, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He made you alive. He didn't just make you alive to make you a scarecrow to do nothing. God made you alive unto good works. And they're waiting for you to do them. Just a couple of thoughts as we close here tonight. How do we walk in good works? How do we walk in good works? Very, very quickly. By showing gratitude for redemption. By showing gratitude for redemption. Giving Him praise for what He's done for us. For dying on the cross, forgiving our sin, placing us in the heavenlies. What if you were unsaved on your way to hell tonight? That's where you'd be without Jesus Christ. How do we walk in good works? By showing gratitude for redemption. Next, number two, by surrendering to sanctification. By surrendering to sanctification. I shared the story of my big toe breaking in half. They had to stitch it up. I didn't want them to stitch it up. I didn't want to surrender to have it stitched up. My dad and a bunch of nurses had to hold me down so they could stick needles in me and then they could sew me up. But it needed to be done. It had to be done. You and I need to surrender to letting God set us apart and sanctify us for His purpose the growth process 2 Peter Peter chapter 1 verse 5 I'm not going to turn there tonight but virtue on knowledge on temperance, on patience on godliness, on brotherly kindness on love, we need to surrender to that process number 3, how do we walk in good works I'm going to close with this thought tonight by serving by serving in all areas of good works what is it God wants you to do? Not what is it God wants the pastor to do? Not what is it God wants your spouse to do or your or your child to do or or the Colton to do. What's God want you to do? Hey, teenager, what's God want you to do? Oh, I'm just a teenager. <coughs> David, a teenager, walked down in the valley of Elam and said, you will not defy my God. He affected his whole country. His whole country. Young married couple, what's God want you to do? Older couple here tonight, maybe your kids are grown. What's God want you to do? What is it God wants you to do? Has he set something aside that he said, okay, I've got some works for you to do. At least once a week, sometimes a couple times a week, Colton and I will sit in my office, our office now, and I'll say to Colton, hey, here's some things I want you to do this week. he will pull out a notebook and I'd like to get this, 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 and this done. Here you go. Now I may ask him, hey, did we get that done? Is that, but that's not my work. That's his work. I believe God has work for you. He has good works for us. Right. He, he's got them set aside. He created you unto good works. When God calls... Just like little Samuel, days gone by. Won't you answer? What do you want, Mark? Okay. You know why you don't want to answer? Because you don't want to do what God wants you to do. I know. You know why? Because I don't always want to do what God wants me to do. How do we walk in good works? By serving in every area. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity tonight to walk in the works that you've prepared for us. Lord, we could spend so long talking about the proofs of love that you have for us. Lord, I praise you. I thank you. I want to worship you tonight for your goodness and your love. As well, Lord, tonight I want us to walk in those works you have for us. Lord, I believe with all my heart tonight that you have prepared some works for every one of us. And Lord, a lot of them don't get done because you prepared them for us, for no one else. God, would you help us to be surrendered tonight? Help us to walk in them. Help us to surrender to sanctification. Help us to praise you for our redemption. God, may we walk in that love that you've proven over and over and over again in Scriptures. Lord, would you be glorified tonight during this time of invitation as we set aside some time just to worship you, to praise you, to yield to your purpose? May that be the case. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Remember the Colton. Let's
1: sing together. 301. Only trust in number 301. Come, every soul, I say.
0: you're so good to us Lord we offer our praise and our worship to you for you're worthy of it Lord may we do more than sing your praises may we do more than lift up your name in this place with our brothers and sisters in Christ may we publish your name among the heathen may we speak of your goodness every day may we Be reminded of your love as we tell others of it. And God, may we find those works that you have for us. May we pick it up on our shoulder. And may we walk in that path and that plan that you have made just for us. How wonderful. That purpose. That fulfillment. Bless us now, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Chapter 4. Acts in chapter 4. By the way, by way of praise report, I wanna thank you for praying for me. I don't know how many days or weeks it's been now. I guess about uh, five, well, I guess it'll be six, maybe six weeks now uh, since I pretended I was evil Knievel. And uh, my shoulder is healing wonderfully. Uh, three weeks ago, if you told me that I would be able to get away for a couple of days and actually go hunting and shoot a rifle, off of this shoulder, I would have called you a liar. But Brother Ahmad is here to testify. It actually happened. And uh, no pain at all. Thanks for praying for me. And uh, Brother Ahmad has a lot of pain because he had to be there. But I have no pain. Acts chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 22. By the way, you'd be praying for Brother Darren. Brother Darren and Pastor Bossy from Calgary are still in the bush. And pray they don't get eaten by a sasquatch before the weekend. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him, doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone. And I love this passage. This is the stone. Which was set it not of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in the other, for there is none of the name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. We spoke about last week their testimony here. In verse 14, And beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it, but that it spread no further among the people. It has straightly threatened them that they speak henceforth to no man in his name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorify God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was shown. And let's pray together. Oh, Lord, how wonderful, how gracious you are to us. Lord, as we open your word together tonight, Lord, as we look at this passage Lord, as we see these men and their determination to make Christ known, to proclaim Christ in their generation, Lord, I pray that each and every believer in this room would have a resolve that we would desire to proclaim Christ. That every open door, every opportunity, Lord, that we would speak for you. Lord, if we were honest with you tonight, we'd have to confess all of us that we let many opportunities slip by. We fail to speak for you many times when we could have. Lord, I pray you'd help us to have a better resolve, help us to, to see the encouragement from the Word of God tonight. Lord, would you challenge us, encourage us, and change us. And Lord, help me. I need your help tonight to preach and teach your Word. Lord, I pray you be glorified. In your precious name we pray. Amen. As we look here in this passage tonight, As we examine exactly what happened, and we're going back a little bit because we, in the very beginning, uh, we see that Peter and John, they were walking. We know that there was a man who was begging, and Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I unto thee, and they healed him. And a man who was not able to walk, all of a sudden, miraculously, by the power of Christ, not by the power of Peter, Not by the power of John, but by the power of Christ, he was made whole. And when that happened, everything changed. Everything in the area surrounding there, in the beautiful porch, everything uh, in the town square, when they watched that happen, it disrupted the the storyline and the ideas of all the people, the religious crowd of the day got very upset. And we looked last week or two weeks ago how they gathered together and said, what are we going to do about this? Uh, we got to put an end to this. we got to stop this. Last week we talked about how their testimony, the testimony of Peter and John, was that they had been with Jesus. They didn't say, wow, he's a great speaker. They didn't say, wow, these people are amazing uh, leaders. Rather, they noted their testimony And it's our testimony as we walk with Christ, our testimony of the time we spend in his word, the time we spend on our knees in prayer, the time that we commune with him, affects how the world sees Christ through us. And we saw that last week. Tonight, I want us to examine and see that determination. That determination that when they said, hey, don't you preach anymore. Don't don't do it again or we'll put you back in jail." And they said we can't but speak the things we've seen and heard. We are determined to tell people about our Savior, about Jesus Christ. As we read these verses, as we read Peter's concluding his address to the Sanhedrin. Now you understand Peter is speaking to a group of people who were indirectly involved in having Jesus murdered not long ago. Powerful people. And Peter addresses them and explains to them who Christ is. This lame man from birth had been healed. The Jewish authorities had vigorously, vigorously protested. However, verse 10 here says, Be it known unto you all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him, doth this man stand before you whole. Peter said, I'm going to tell you how this happened. I'm not going to not speak the name of Christ. I'm going to proclaim who it was that did this. It was the power of Christ. They were determined. I want to see just some very simple thoughts here tonight, very simple thoughts from this passage. Number one, and then this I'd like to spend all night here, but I want us to look at the metaphor that God gave to Peter that Peter used to share about Christ." Uh, And we see that here in verse 11. This is the stone, which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Now, I want you to hold your place here. I'd like you to turn back to the book of Psalms, Psalm 118. Psalm 118 and verse 22. Psalm one eighteen twenty two says the stone, which the builders refused. I want you to notice the word there. The builders refused, is become the headstone of the corner. The Jews had a legend that when Solomon's temple was built, and by the way, when Solomon's temple was built, several things happened. The stones that were quarried to build the temple, were quarried a good ways away from the temple. They didn't want the sound of, of, of that to be affected around the temple, so they were quarried quite a ways away. They were cut quite a ways away. They were transported miraculously. I mean, imagine the size of some of those stones uh, as they were brought without the equipment we have today. It took about seven years to build uh, that temple. That's a long time, Brother and Ma, but that's pretty fast when you think about How slow some of the projects here like our LRT project. How many of you know I'm talking about? Uh, Fifteen years later. But anyway, I digress. But seven years it took to build. So we have a group of folks that are cutting stone, preparing stone. We have folks that are preparing the land, and and all the stones are moving. There's a lot of people in play. You know, this is not a one-man job. (laughs) This is not, okay, uh, Ahmad, you're in charge of building the temple, so you cut the stones. He would still be building the temple. Uh, if he was still alive. He'd still be working. That's not what happened. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laborers involved in the building of Solomon's Temple. And there were stone cutters. I mean, all kinds of different pieces and cogs in the wheel of the building. Now, in Jewish legend, uh, and I believe from some of the passages of Scripture, I believe it quite possibly could have been so, uh, that the stones were brought from the quarry, brought to the to the site of the building, and they're all staged around for the building. And one of the builders went around and went, why is there this one big stone? This is not the right size. We don't want this. This doesn't fit the rest of them. So they rejected, and there's a Jewish legend that it was, Put down in the valley of Kidron, and they rolled it down and got it down there. And then, when it came time to start the building, they realized that cornerstone was missing, and they had to bring it back. We do know the Bible tells us in the book of Psalms that there was one at least who rejected the cornerstone, the cornerstone of the building of that temple. Peter shared that story a story that probably most, if not all of the people gathered around knew. He explained how that cornerstone had been rejected. We know that from the book of Psalms. And then he said, I want to tell you who that cornerstone is. That cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Peter said, you rejected him. He came into his own, his own received him not. They crucified the Lord of glory. They said, we don't want you. And Peter here is drawing that metaphor of who Jesus is as he shares that with him. Uh, That stone was a picture of Christ. That Christ that they rejected. Uh, The Christ of Isaiah 28 verse 16. Uh, How how beautiful. We see the prophetic uh, words of Isaiah given by God of Christ that would be rejected. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, that Christ is the foundation stone upon which the church is built. By the way, not Peter, not a man, but Christ. He is the cornerstone. And by the way, there's only one. Uh, He is the only one, the only cornerstone. But not only is he the cornerstone And he's the cornerstone of my faith. He's the cornerstone of my life. The Bible says that he created all things. And then it says, by him, all things consist. You understand without Jesus Christ, that the molecules that I am made of, and there's a lot of them, (laughs) they just, they wouldn't be held together. I, I consist by him. I was created by him. He's the cornerstone, but he's more than that. He's also, the Bible speaks of him being the stumbling stone. In Matthew 21, 44, The so many come to Christ and they refuse the gospel because they stumble. They don't want to receive it. I guarantee you a couple of years before Brother Ahmad came to Christ uh, as a lost Muslim, Christ was a stumbling stone to him to believe, to believe the gospel. Because to him, Christ was, was a prophet, but he wasn't crucified. He didn't die and raise again. Uh, he, he was not the Savior. He was not uh, God. That would be a stumbling block. By the way, that's a stumbling block to humanists today. That I, how would I, I don't need God. I am my own God. I, I, I don't need a way to cover I'm good. I can do it on my own. He is a stumbling block. If we do not step on that cornerstone by faith, he becomes a stumbling stone to those that reject him. Turn, if you will, to Daniel 2. Hold your place in Acts. We're going to come back in just a moment. Looking at a couple Old Testament passages here tonight. Daniel chapter 2 (coughs) and verses 31 through 45. Of course, Daniel is a prophetic book. Daniel, of course, was brought into captivity in Babylon. Uh, He was there with Ahmad's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, and Nebuchadnezzar. And he was in Babylon. I'm teasing. Uh, He he was a bad guy. Anyway, he was there. But God gave him his word, and much of what Daniel was given was prophetic of things that have not yet come that will come. And as we look in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 31, uh, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands which smote, which smote the image upon his feet that were iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron and clay and the brass and silver and gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain. And filled the whole earth. This is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And whosoever the children of men dwell, and the beasts of the field, and fowls of heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over the, all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And an iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass. Notice this word, hereafter. And the dream is certain. And the interpretation is sure. Can I tell you that the stone that Peter spoke about, that he said, I want you to know about my Savior, I want you to know about Christ, he is that stone. He is the one that will rule. The kingdom stone, breaking in pieces all of the kingdom. But I I love this, this metaphor as Peter's introducing. I want you to know who Jesus is. He used a way that they could understand this metaphor. Number two, notice that the Lord Jesus is the only Savior. Let's go back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, in verse 11. By the way, it's not just that Jesus is a Savior. That's right. Amen. He's the Savior. Amen. There are many, oh yeah, you know, there's many ways to God. There's Jesus, there's Muhammad, there's Buddha, uh, there's transcendentalism, there's uh, humanism, there's uh, all of these different isms and schisms and ways to God, many would say. But the Bible, the Word of God, not, not religion, not a church, God's Word says that there is only one way. I am the way, the truth, the life. There's one Savior. Verse 11 it says, This is the stone which is set in not for your builders, which has become the head of the corner. And look at verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved the lord jesus christ is the only savior peter here said i want everyone to know that jesus is the savior the only savior and i want you to notice a couple three things here uh, that we see number one as we think about the lord jesus the only savior salvation is in a person salvation is not in a place you know, many think, "Well, I got to find a holy place." Moses said uh, he came to a place of the burning bush, and God said, "Take off the shoes from all thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is this holy ground." And we say, "Oh man, I need to find holy ground." Can I tell you that uh, all the ground is holy ground? Can I tell you that I can uh, come to God anywhere? There's not a place. Salvation's not in a place. Salvation is not in a religion. It's not in a set of rules. It's not in keeping of a commandment. It's not in anything except the person of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation outside the person of Christ. I can't find it anywhere else. When when I'm speaking with someone of the many, many false religions and false cults, I always ask the question, who do you think Jesus Christ is? I never say was, because he is. And... You find out real fast, oh, I think he was a good teacher. You have no salvation. You have no hope. Oh, he was a good man. He was a religious leader. Uh, He was a a martyr. Can I tell you that he is God? He is the only way of salvation. And salvation is in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. We can look at Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 19, Uh, so many wonderful passages. But salvation is in Christ. If I have him, I'm saved. It's in Christ. Number two, as we think about Jesus being the only Savior, the name of the person signifies his ability to save. Look at Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. Let's go back there quickly. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Literally, his name is Savior, and Jesus. He is the Savior. How wonderful. We, uh, I heard a joke years ago about a young boy. He was a Cree boy. And he went to his dad one day and he said, Dad, he said, tell me again the story about how you chose our names when we were born. His father was a wise chief. He looked at his son. He said, I don't know why you always ask me this question. I told you. He said, When your mother's giving birth, he said, I look outside the teepee, whatever I see. He said, That's what I name my children. He said, Your sister, I opened the door of the teepee when she was giving birth I saw beautiful rainbow and named her beautiful rainbow said your brother as I he was coming as your mother was in the throes of pain giving birth I looked out and I saw running deer I named him running deer and then he looked at his son and said son ugly dog why do you always ask me the same question all the time Uh, can I tell you that a name says a lot but a name the name of Jesus says more than It's everything. His name signifies His authority, His ability to save. Number three, we see in this it means He is the only Savior. Not not just a Savior, not just a good way, but the only way. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of John, and I'll just read very quickly for you, John chapter 10 and verse 9. And I quoted it a moment ago, I am the door. For if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and am pastor, I saw uh, a, a door today, a funny picture, a real picture. I believe it was in Portugal. There was a door about this wide, a real door, uh, normal height, but very, very narrow. And it was in a monastery, and I believe it was Portugal. And I read the story behind the history of this doorway, unusual doorway, very narrow doorway. And the reason it existed, they were trying to keep the monks from getting too fat. The doorway went into the kitchen. And the rule was, in the monastery, you could only eat in the kitchen. No food outside the kitchen. Uh, So, Brother Mott, if I couldn't get through the door, I'm not eating until I lose a little weight. That'd probably be a good idea. We're going to install one in our house soon. But there was only one way in. And you had to be able to fit in or you couldn't get in. And can I tell you there's only one way to heaven? And the wonderful thing is anybody can fit in if we go through Jesus Christ. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How wonderful that that door is open to all. doesn't matter where I'm from. It doesn't matter my background. It doesn't matter my culture. That's right. It simply matters that I believe him. But he is the only Savior. We see that in John ten, in John chapter fourteen. Uh, I had go on just another verse and read for you. John fourteen and verse six. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And we saw there in Acts chapter four and verse twelve, if you want to turn back to our text. In Acts four, twelve, Peter, as he was proclaiming, by the way, his goal was to proclaim Christ. He said, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there was none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. There have been many great teachers in the world, many great philosophers that have enriched mankind with their wisdom, but they're all dead. Jesus is the greatest because he is the eternal son of God, and he's alive. Forevermore. As Stephen was being stoned, he looked up into heaven and he saw the heavens open and he saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God the Father. He's alive forevermore. He's unique. None can compare with him. He alone can save. He is the only Savior. Now we see that the proclamation of that here in this passage. Number three. Notice the illustration of the outshining, the outshining. We talked about this last week, but I want to I touch on it again. The outshining of the indwelling Christ. Verse 16, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them, as manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. How many of you like garlic? Any garlic fans in here? I love garlic. I think I think you should put garlic on everything. I, I love garlic. Years ago, uh, I was working on a, the first van we have for the church, an old van. And I didn't have a place to work on it with a heated garage, so I, I went somewhere. The uh, family had a heated garage, and they made me some garlic toast and really good dense bread and scrubbed uh, bulbs of garlic into the bread. Brother Jeff, it was good. And I ate. About a loaf of bread. I mean, it was really good. I probably had a whole bulb or more of garlic. It was awesome. Oh, I was, I was happy. I was content. I left there and I drove home. I walked in the door of the house. My wife went, oh, what in the world does that smell? She's like, You're not kissing me. You're not even sleeping in the same bed with me. I'm not sure I'm going to let you be in the same house with me. I reeked of garlic. I went and brushed my teeth three or four times. I came back. Oh, you still stink. The next day, every time I would begin to sweat, garlic smell came out of my sweat. I smelled like a garlic for a week. I mean, it came out of me. It really came out of me. Can I tell you, we see a picture here of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit outshining and being seen as they said they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus they, they knew that they saw that uh, verse 13 when they saw the boldness of Peter and John I love the picture here two humble fishermen but they stood boldly and said let me tell you about Jesus let me tell you who Christ is uh, how 2 Corinthians 5 17 they were new creatures they were new creatures in Christ. They weren't just fishermen. They were children of God. They weren't just unlearned and ignorant men. They were born again. They were transformed by the power of Christ. And they were proclaiming Christ. It was outshining from them. Can't be hidden. They'd been with Jesus. I could not hide the fact that I had eaten all that garlic. I, I just, It just came off of me, the smell everywhere I went. Uh, people were falling down dead. Uh, Not one time, I want you to know, John, not one vampire attacked me during that time or any other time in my life. But I, I smelled like garlic. It was coming out of me. Christian, we see the illustration here of our testimony shining out to the world. Number four, notice the mighty power of a changed life. Again, in verse 14. Verse 14, and beholding the man now, this man, let's, let's figure out who we are here, is the man who originally, in Acts chapter 3, was sitting or laying by the side of the road with a cop. On so poor! My legs don't work. I can't walk. Can you help me? He was made whole. He was changed. He was transformed in verse 12, or verse 14. And beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. What a mighty power to change life. The power of a transformed life. The power of Christ changing someone. Those that opposed Peter and John had nothing to say. It says right there. They couldn't say, well, he's not healed. Yes, I am. I'm walking. You know me all my life. I couldn't walk. Now I can. A changed life. That testimony. The power of our testimony. The power of a changed life. How can we prove (laughs) to the Sadducees there's a resurrection from the dead? Right there. The Pharisees. The cynics. Not by argument or discussion. By the way, God, nowhere in the Bible does God call you to argue with someone about Christ we to proclaim Christ. But God didn't call you to win an argument. That's
1: right.
0: Amen. God didn't call you to go and uh, be a better arguer for Christ. We're proclaimers of Christ. We're to share Christ. But can I tell you what shares Christ more than your words and your arguments? It's your life. A transformed life. A life that shows the love of Christ. A life that lives out the gospel. A life that matches those old funny kung fu theater movies I used to watch as a boy. Kung fu matinee, they called it, I think, on TV when I was a boy. Those old movies as they would uh, fight kung fu. It wasn't real kung fu, but it was great, great, great movies. Uh, I loved them as a kid. And they'd, their mouth would be moving because they would be Chinese movies. And I don't speak Chinese. And the market they were showing them were not, they didn't speak Chinese. So they would dub in English voices. And the, the mouths moving didn't match the words because they didn't mesh. And that was part of the comedy for it for me. I enjoyed it. It was hilarious. It's kind of like the you've seen the bad lip reading videos, you know, people take videos of people talking and they they dub in words and it's hilarious. Here, they don't fit. Or they didn't fit there. Here We see the life of Peter and John, the life of this man, it blended and meshed. Our testimony of a changed life blended and meshed with our testimony of who Christ is coming together has a power that our words alone cannot have, a changed life. We see that testimony here, Uh, the mighty power of that. Uh, All obstacles put down by changed life. As we simply live out Christ. Number five. Verse 19 in our text. Notice the importance first. First loyalties. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them. Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God judge ye. Can I tell you what Peter was saying here? I'm going to listen to him first. I'm going to obey the authorities over me unless... Those authorities want me to do something opposite of the word of God. At that point, I have to obey the greater authority. I always obey the greater authority. And Peter and John said, hey, we want to be good citizens. <laughs> uh, we, we want to do all we we're supposed to do. By the way, Jesus taught them that. Whenever they were asking, hey, should we, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus said, hey, who's, uh, whose face is on that coin? Yeah. Paying to Caesar, that was a Caesar, he said. Hey, be a good citizen. So Peter said, hey, we, we want to we honor those who are in authority, but understand, you be the judge who the greater authority is. Peter said, Christ is our greatest authority. And that's why they wanted to share Christ, because he was the greatest authority. They had to lift up that great authority. And we see that picture, that importance here. In our business, in our home, in our personal life, in our church life, Everything we do, we need to make sure we place God as the premier, final authority. Every decision you make. So often we we have a decision to make. We think, okay, what do I want more? And then after we make a decision, we say, oh, Lord, please bless my decision. We, We want the blessing of God on our desire and our want. When in reality, the proper method is, Lord, give me your... Give me what your will would be. Show, give, me, get, show me what, give me discretion here to understand if it's anything goes against your will, I won't do it. We need to let him be the final authority in every aspect of our life. Everything we do, everything. Absolutely everything. Number six. There's two more quick points I want to give you. Notice the divine compulsion, which rests upon the faithful servants of God look at verse 20 for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen or heard I'm not a grandparent yet I may be someday I may have to adopt grandkids but uh, I have I know grandparents I I've watched my grandparents when I was when I was younger I watched great-grandparents when my girls were born, and we would get pictures and the, before the age of, you know, everybody having a cell phone. do You remember those days? Now, if you want to send, take a picture, and you send it to your, your mother, your grandmother, your great-grandmother around the world that quick. Oh, there's a picture. Oh, they look so cute. In the old days, Brother Bonnie, we used to have to go to a, a place where we'd get film developed. <laughs> and I remember when you'd get it in 24 hours, That or one hour. That was impressive. And then you'd have this, and you had to like put it in an envelope and put a thing called a stamp on the envelope. And you had to, you know, dog sled would No, you'd mail it. And, but I remember when we would send pictures to my, grand, my grandmother of our girls, and I heard stories about my grandmother, the church she attended. As soon as she, she would take the pictures of my girls, her great grandchildren, Uh, Rebecca and she'd place Rebecca's picture inside her Bible and she couldn't wait to go to church on Sunday morning because she'd walk in church Sunday morning as soon as she walked in church she'd hate you see my great-granddaughter now she was ugly but grandma loved her anyway and you got to see him and she'd have to show off that picture to everybody why? They have to. That's the rule of being a grandparent. Because they love that grandchild or great-grandchild. They want folks to see. They want folks to know. Can I tell you, Christian, that we have a compulsion? As a believer, we ought to want to share Christ. It ought not be, man, I want this to myself. You know, if my wife has a snack or something that she likes, and there's just a little bit of it, she loves me. Brother Bonnie, my wife, I believe she loves me. But if there's something that you know, she really likes, and there's just like a little bit of it, I would not be surprised. She's listening right now back in the nursery. If she would take it, and she would go somewhere and hide and enjoy it so she could have it to herself. She may do that. That's okay. She's allowed to do that. She's a grown-up. Uh, now, why? Because there's, there's just a little bit, and she wants to have it. We all have been there. But Christ is not just a little bit. The wonderful thing about being a Christian is not the, oh, man, I've got it. I've got all there is. No. It's available for all the world. And there's a compulsion here in Peter and John. We have to tell everybody. We need to tell the world about Christ. There's that compulsion to be able to share. In other words, I can't help it. We, we, have to, we have to tell about Christ. We have to share the things we've seen and heard. I'm going to turn quickly just a couple of verses. John, in the Gospel of John chapter 9. And I'll, you, Turn there if you want, but I'm just going to read a very quick verse. John 9 and verse 4, it says, this is the words of Jesus. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Jesus said, I have to do it. By the way, Paul had the same opinion of the work of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, he said, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Paul said, I have have to preach it. I have to tell it. I have to tell people about Christ. If our hearts are full of love for Christ and the souls of men, we we won't find it hard. We won't find it hard to give our lives for his service. To speak the gospel message. In the gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, the Bible tells us in verse 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mount speaketh. Do you know why we don't speak about Christ? Because we don't think about him. We don't dwell in our heart on Christ. When we do, we have to speak of him. And lastly, let's turn back to Acts 4, and we'll close with these two verses. Just a quick thought as we, we close here. and Acts 4, verses 21 and 22. And I want you to see the greatest thing that happened in this passage. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men, notice this phrase, glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom the miracle, the healing was showed. Verse 21, the greatest thing we see here, The people didn't, as John and Peter left, they didn't go, Woohoo, yeah, John. It's good to go. Way to go, Peter. No. But they glorified God. Christian, your goal and my goal as we share Christ is not that we are glorified, but that we can glorify God. And that others will glorify God. One of the litmus tests that we can put our motives and our actions through. Is am I doing this to glorify God or to glorify me? Our ultimate goal ought to be to glorify God. Why is it that, and we had to have boldness to share Christ for His glory? Jesus said, If I be lifted up, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. My job and your job is simply to lift up Jesus. In the Old Testament, we read about a battle. The battle, Joshua, Joshua was fighting the battle. Moses is up on the hill with the rod of God in his hand and Moses is holding up his hands. And when Moses' hands were held, the battle went to Joshua and his army. But eventually Moses' arms got tired. Eventually they started to drop. The Bible says that Aaron and Hur came and they held up the hands of the man of God. Moses didn't have the strength to lift them up, and Aaron on one side and her on the other. They lifted the hands of Moses. Can I tell you it is not because our God does not have the strength to lift himself up, but God wants us to lift him up. God has designed it that we glorify him as we lift him up to a lost world. And we see when we do that, the result is always and the glorified God. That's the purpose. That's the focus. God's servants were set free. That was great. But the greatest thing was the fact that God was glorified in everything that was done. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to realize the importance. The importance that we have, the, the focus that we ought to have. And, getting out the name of Christ and sharing the gospel with the lost world. Lord, the world is not beating down the doors of Christians trying to find out the answer. Lord, in our culture today, just like it was in Jeremiah's day, just like it was in many of the days of the prophets, many don't want to hear the word of the Lord. But Lord, I pray you'd help us to keep proclaiming Christ not just by our words, but Lord, may we proclaim Christ and the gospel as well by our changed life, by the love of Christ that we show to a lost world, by the way that we care about the souls of men. Lord, I pray that we would glorify you. I pray that we would have a relationship with you that would cause us to testify of you, that out of the abundance of the heart, we would speak. Give us boldness, give us your love, give us directness. And Lord, I pray most of all that you would be glorified. Help us as we see, as we continue looking through the book of Acts. We see the gospel going forth. Lord, still we see in Jerusalem. Very soon we'll see it bust out of the walls of Jerusalem. And Lord, that gospel flame has been traveling for 2,000 years. Lord, as we carry that flame, as we share it abroad, Lord, I pray that we would continue to lift up Jesus. Bless us now, Lord. Dismiss us with your grace. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Before we uh, leave tonight, can I ask uh, uh, any fellows that can?